Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Crowcast Podcast. I'm Shane. Hey, I'm Ronnie. And these are the audio versions of the interviews we've had with our special guests on Crowcast. This episode, we talk to Toby Jepson. What a dude. Oh, man. I mean, this was taken around, yeah, it was July the 7th, yeah. uh, this episode. Um, great character. Um absolutely brilliant and he was so realistic as well i mean you gotta think this was um throughout some of the, the 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 darker times of the lockdown um which you know for some of us we're currently still in or we're, we're just entering um toby was very realistic about the future and could basically see things that weren't being said um during this episode so it is it is quite a a powerful episode he actually sent me an email afterwards uh shane saying um oh sorry boys he was like absolutely enjoyed i loved it um but i talked way too much my wife said and uh it was funny because i (laughs) i sent him one back saying um you're one of my wife's favorite guests and she was actually disappointed when i would interrupt you or stop you in your pace like so um yeah he did he come across he was still hungry do you know what i mean he's still in the industry he's determined he's adapting to the current situation he's not you know sitting around thinking what should we do he's he's a bit like the crows you know what can we do as opposed to oh, i'll wait until all this is over um yeah inspiring guy man talked about his new album too yeah yeah definitely um currently i don't know if it's uh they've got a name for it yet but he's definitely started work on the brand new wayward sons album hey and we even had an exclusive as well during this episode so that was that was a, a very very special special moment because obviously we had to talk about the past and how we how we started and um especially the little angels so a little bit of a little bit of an exclusive in this for anybody listening to this i won't spoil it but um actually should we uh let's get into it here we go strap in this is crowcast podcast ladies and gentlemen please welcome mr toby jepson Hello. Hey, yes, technology works. <laughs> How's How it going? How are we? Not too bad. You look well. Yeah, feeling good. You feeling coping good, yeah. with madness? Um, yeah, I think so. It's been challenging, hasn't it? Um, but um, I think uh, when I look back on this period, it'll be a period of um, rebirth. I think is the uh, probably the best the best way of describing it. You know. Um, you know, pushed into a bit of a corner with everything, of course, like we all have. And it's just, I think you either sink or swim, don't you? You've got to get up, get off your ass and do something about it and um, be positive and make waves and create and do all that sort of good stuff and uh, forget all the, uh, the rest of it, you know? So um, that's what I've been doing. I've never, I've never worked too hard, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you've been, you've been super busy, haven't you? You know, with all your sort of live sort of in the kitchen and what have you. Um, yeah. And watch it. It's, it's, it's wicked, mate. Yeah, no, it's been great fun. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to technology, being a, certain, a man of a certain age. But um, I, I think, you know, you, you're a fool if you don't realise that the world is changing around you and you've got to change with it. You know, that's that's the whole principle. I mean, I've been in the I've been in this game over 30 years now and I've seen a lot of changes. <laughs> but this is the biggest ever. I mean, I think our, our business and, our you know, our um, industry is um suffering massively at the moment you know and um 
we've got to all pull together. You know, you've got to make it, a, you've got to make it a good thing. You know, you've got to look at what, I mean, for me, what it's all been about boys is just rediscovering the music and, and actually stop thinking about the stuff that not that I ever really did. I, I've never been one to be interested or concerned about the, the window shopping of this business. I'm interested in the music and the music only, you know, um, but I think this period's been great at that. It's been being able to focus on precisely um, just the, the songwriting and, and, and the music and looking what you know what to do next and how to uh, approach it and how you can best use the tools you've got at your fingertips. You know. Yeah, I've I've always been um, personally I've been captivated by some of your live your Facebook live streams when you did like um, lightning in a bottle or you've always been transparent and open about the changes in the industry. And like you just said now, 30 years in the industry, you've watched so many changes. And and honestly, you think this is the... Because I've heard some of the stuff you said in the past about like obviously um, the the dangers of, of the, the split with Europe. And I took that, took on board a lot what you said there. Mm. Um, the, the streaming and how it's changed um, and being creative and bands not being so lazy and expecting it to come to them. Mm. Um, so it was really cool when you just turned around and said that, that this has been the biggest... Probably the biggest change for you personally, like you know, I think it's been the biggest change for us all. I mean, any musician that hasn't grasped the concept of you need to move online, I mean, you know, it is is going to be left behind. I mean, the, the reality is is that we're not going to be playing live shows in the way that we understand what live shows are for well over a year. I mean, still, you know, the you know, the, the, the news isn't great, you know. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of reluctance of audiences to a certain degree. I mean, you know, how many venues are going to be left at the end of all this? I mean, I hate to be completely dour about it, but it's the truth. And we have to face these things. And so what I say, you've got to look at what you've got left. You know, what do you have? What is the, what is this business all about? Well, as far as I'm concerned, this business is only about one thing, and that's about creating great music and creating great, writing great songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the trouble is perhaps what's happened in the past, and I think maybe this what's great about this situation, because we've kind of hit the reset button, right? is that there's been a lot of emphasis on things I don't think matter. I don't think things like having a great looking website ultimately at the end of the day really matter if your songs aren't great. You know, I think, you know, I mean, I produce a lot of bands. I spend a lot of time with youngsters and, you know, it's the biggest challenge is to sort of ask them what they've actually got to say. You know, what what is your music saying? What are you bringing? What are you contributing to the art world? What is, what is that stuff? What is that? What is the point of you doing this? You know, and um, I think the trouble is the industry has mo- moved away from the sort of like the initial, um, the original blueprint, which was, you know, I mean, for me, look, look at me when I started out back in the 80s, a long time ago, chaps, um, you know, it was all about, you know, getting out of the small town. It was all about having, uh, you know, having a voice and, and challenging authority and, um, you know, and using rock and roll as a fr- speech, free- speech of freedom and as a march for freedom and, and, to, and to, to generate um a feel a feeling of community and i think a lot of the time over the last sort of certainly over the last 20 years that's been eroded i think it's become a business well actually you know rock and roll was anti-establishment that's what it was all about it was out of the streets out of the back doors out of the garages on at the streets talking about something that mattered about your generation um and i think that's been eroded i think it's now become a business people think about the business more than they do about the art and that's a massive mistake in my my view um, get the art right, everything else follows, you know? And so I think this is a good reset. I think every musician should look at themselves and go, well, what am I actually contributing here? You know, what do I have actually to say that, that brings brings me out and has, gives me a voice and brings some positivity, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it's been a challenge, but, you know, I think it's ultimately this is what we have to do, you know? 100%, mate. You're absolutely right. I mean, your mindset is bang on there. 
you will get left behind if you don't if you don't take advantage of it's not it's not a good thing you're absolutely right but if you sit in there you will get lost you you've got to you've got to react to the situation mm-hmm. um not just wait until oh when when it when it's all fine again um like you said it could be a long old time um so well, the, the world, the, the, and the world doesn't work like that does it the world doesn't wait for anybody you know the reality is is that i think the trouble with modern society is that we become far too comfortable i think we expect we are we there's a there's a massive amount of kind of you know um yeah just expectation you know uh entitlement you know it's it, we i think that, that that's a, a big problem and, and art doesn't allow that really art is supposed to react to these things you know what i mean you shouldn't yeah. be a question of Oh, I'm just going to carry on on the status quo. Carry on as doing exactly what we should do. No, you know the reality is that the great art is a reaction to the times and, and, and reaction to um, to your own personal situation within those times. And wanting to try and promote, especially in rock and roll. Rock and roll has always been the for, the forefront of the freedom movement. That's what it's always been about. You know, um, it's not it's not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Actually, the reality is that's a bit of a smokescreen. The reality is underneath it. Um, there is some real stuff there. There is some substance, and so there should be. You know, the bands that we all love, that we all still cite, as, you know, as the greatest bands of all time. The reason why we do is because they had substance and they had a long game, and it was uh, it was something that was about them for for uh, you know for their lives. It was their lives on show, um, and I think that's what you need to grasp. And so you need to grasp that has to be there anyway. And then this, then the technology is there to aid that. That's that's the way I look at it. You know. I might be totally wrong, boys. What can I tell you? No, mate. No. <laughs> no. It's exactly it's... how we see it. Um, we, the minute this happened, I mean, we just had an album out. We just done our first UK tour. Um, things are going well, the, the the charts and stuff, and then the world stopped. Um, mm. And we could have quite easily have just done nothing, but we just yeah, yeah. Said, react with the crow, uh, the crowcast. The, the fans have been incredible with us. Um it was about giving back to them. What can we do to entertain them? It was just always constantly thinking. And we still got lots yeah. of things in the pipeline um, that mm. we haven't brought um, to the table yet. Um, mm. But we will. Um, lots of ideas and lots of things. But, uh, you're right. It's constant. The world is constantly changing. So you have to. You have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's just a great opportunity to focus on your writing, I think. I mean, I, I keep saying this to people. You know, this is the time to reflect. This is the time to really dig in and, and create some great work because you've got no distractions. There isn't there isn't the thing about, oh, we've got a gig next week. You know, well, these, these don't have to be negatives. These can be positives, you know. Um, and and I've, I sort of fast settled into the concept. Because, I mean, you know, look at Wayward Sons. We haven't even, we were supposed, we were due to do our first, our second headline tour on our second record in in April, you know. And it's it was like, no, that's not happening, you know. Um, I, it, you know, but I didn't. I didn't react to that and go, "Oh, damn it!" You know, oh, oh, oh. what I did was I go, "Okay, right. So, what can we do? Yeah. What, 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 what is the process? Okay, how do we move forward? Because we're all in this. We're all in this. No one's got an advantage. You know what I mean? It's we're a community of musicians, and and you know, and I, I, I love new music, and I love new bands, and I love the whole concept of rock and roll, and I still do, always have done. Um, and a massive part of that for me is about. Is, is about the community. I mean, you mentioned the fans there. I think I think this is amazing what you're, you guys are doing, and I think you're doing it absolutely right. And you're giving quality, you're giving um, a connection, and that that's what I've I've always believed. Because, you know, it's an old cliche, but fans are nothing without the fans. As simple as that. You know, if you don't have you know, if you don't have fans, you have nothing. Simple as. Hundred percent. And the way you describe that as a reset, it's not just like the the industry reset. I think I think people now have realised 
they took, took things for granted, you know. Yeah, um, totally. Light music in particular, how important mentally, you know, the, like mental health is a big thing right now, and music is, is a huge outlet for that. And yeah. now they can't go and see their favorite acts. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's almost resetting their focus and realizing that when this comes back around again and it's good, I think there'll be a real upsurge, um, mm. hopefully, in the music, how, how the business is being run, and hopefully mm. it'll thrive again. Um, but I, right I now, really... Yes, I absolutely couldn't agree more. I this this is a this is a, this is a phenomenon. You know, I mean, viruses aren't anything new. You know, you know, the last virus of this nature of any uh, you know this this scale was was the Spanish Spanish flu back in 1918, which decimated the world. Fifty million people died. We can't take this lightly. You know, um, and I, I grow tired of people constantly trying to say it's some kind of. Um, you know, conspiracy or nonsense like that. And I know people who have died of this of this virus. You know, um, and anyone who takes it lightly is a fool. Um, there's, there's very famous quotes from the period of of, of the 1918 pan pandemic about people returning to the pubs and um, and how everyone thought it was all okay too quick. And they had the second spike, which was four months after the initial spike, and that killed the majority of people. You know, so we can't take this lightly. You know, um, and I, I I refuse to. Um, you know, indulge people that, that believe that you know this. This is something that's happening to the world, and it's it's a fundamental problem. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that people. I do. I genuinely do hope that people are sat in their, their houses and, and they've they've had time to reflect upon themselves and the way that they conduct themselves and and the way that they you know the way that they uh, they work and the way that they 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 play and uh, and can take a long hard look. I mean, I think you know. What, what, can you remember a time the last time anywhere in the world? Everyone had three months off, right? No. Where you sit, <laughs> right? Where you sit around and all you could do, all you could do is look at yourself and go, because because you, you know we all do that. We all go away for two weeks on a holiday, whatever. And, and you you kind of start at the end of that two weeks, perhaps reassessing some aspects of your life. You know, I have with all those conversations around the pool in Spain somewhere with your missus. Where when we get home, love, I'm going to convert that garage. <laughs> I'm selling the car and I'm getting a pair of roller skates. A whammer, right? Yeah. We all say this shit, don't we? We all bollocks. But, but the reality is, we've had three months to think. And I think there's no excuse. The amount of times I've been seeing people, you know, working in their gardens and, you know, painting their houses and stuff like that. Well, that's all part and parcel of the need for humans to do stuff, isn't it? Um, and be positive. You know, that's what it ultimately comes down to. So so I genuinely hope that people have been able to look at that and reflect upon their lives and make some changes for the better and, and reevaluate the way. I actually think more than anything else about community, again, the whole the whole aspect of community, you know, um, how do you deal with your neighbours? How do you deal with your friends? How can we go forward? How can I improve myself? You know, that that's what I hope. I mean, I don't know whether, I'm, <laughs> whether that's in reality going to happen, but uh, I, really, I really hope so. Toby, one of my one of my good friends moved to Swindon many years ago, and um, I have seen him more weekly on Zoom because uh, mm. we do a Zoom meetup and we do quizzes and stuff like that. It's been phenomenal because the connections there. Um, I went out for a walk the other day, and I, I've been living where I have for fourteen years, and it's the first time that every time I pass somebody, everybody had the time to say morning. Yeah. Or how are you doing? Everything okay? And I was yeah. like, wow, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. Uh, yeah. And that's the genuine truth. I grew up in a in a very, um, you know, a street that did did parties, celebrated people's birthdays, um, always looked in on each other, left the doors yeah. open. Everything was great when we grew up because uh, me and Shane lived um, pretty close to each other. Mm. Um, and it's the first time I've actually seen a, a slice of that humanity where it's just that 
that time to see how are you doing rather than walking straight past somebody or it was it was really nice to us it was just it was refreshing yeah. and and not surprising because ultimately you know we could, we've had so many distractions and we you know the modern living is such that people uh, I think we all are guilty of just feeling content you know and I think that's not and of course that's fantastic that we all feel content but what I mean is it's a there's a sense of kind of acceptance of the situation and we 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 all we're all very indulgent we're all, we're all very selfish really ultimately when it comes down to it and i think the thing is this situation has caused people to take stock especially if you know people that have like i have you know um you know that have passed away because of the virus and you know uh, and suffered because of it or or, or they've got family members or whatever and the reality hits home that this is not normal you know the, the reality is, is we're just very frail creatures I mean, humans are not, um, you know, we're, we're not uh, infallible. You know, it's a, there's a, it's a, it's, I think it's a case of that. Those sorts of things are really important to realise. I mean, it's interesting to note that after the, if, you have, if you've read anything about the, the 1918 pandemic, it very, and also if you go back, even back to when Samuel Pepys was talking about the Black Death back way back, you know, in sort of 16th century, um, you know, the, the, the results were the same, is that there was a kind of outpouring of human, human, um, need after the it all, you know, after the years of, of of going through it and the processing of all that. I mean, it took nearly two years for the, for the Spanish flu to fully erad be eradicated, and it disappeared quite quickly. But then we had the Roaring Twenties, and the interesting thing was the Roaring Twenties were a direct result of this upsurge of the need for positivity, and it was only the, the first, the sort of Second World War that interrupted that process. Very, very interesting about the way that the, that the world reacted in a positive way to it is what I'm trying to say. There was a a great change in the in the air, and I hope that that's the way that we react here as well. Maybe different, of course, but um, I genuinely hope the vast. Some my dad always used to say, the real people that are in control are the, are the silent majority. And I think that's you, me, and every normal person out there that believes in having a good life and being good to others. You know. Absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you anymore. Um, so, let's talk about Mr. Toby Jepson. Um, we after. Yeah. <laughs> so when did it start for you, Toby? What what age were you when 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 music kind of grabbed hold of you? Who was who was the artist that made you kind of think I want to do that or I want a piece of that? Um, it was it was um, I had about three or four Eureka moments, but the first Eureka moment really was uh, I was I was brought up in a household that didn't have television, and my dad was um what I regard as a sort of I I often say he came from that first generation of teenagers. And what I mean by that is kids that grew up in the 50s and entered their teenage at the point when music and the arts were revolutionized through the 60s, 60s explosion, right? So I was born in 1967 um, on the same day as John Lennon when um, the 9th of October when uh, Sergeant Pepper Sergeant yeah. Pepper was released, and um, and that that was a huge influence on my 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 folks. My dad was was a uh, um, a mod. He had a he rode a Lambretta, and he went down to the Curzels um, um, venue down in Southend and watched the Who, and and you know he brought all those stories back to us as children, as little kids. But we grew up in a house. We, mum and dad weren't very we weren't wealthy at all. My dad was a teacher, um, and but he had an amazing record collection, right? So I grew up every morning with everything from. It could have been the Beatles through to, um, you know, could be the Eagles, the Beach Boys. This is all we had for entertainment was that and the beach because we lived on the beach. We literally lived on the beach pretty much. Wow. So, that, so as a kid, I was brought up in this environment of music and I didn't, without knowing it, I absorbed all of this fantastic music, you know, and it became part of my life. And so that that was that was kind of already in me. Um, 
And then we moved and we done, my dad renovated a house and he bought, they bought their first, well, actually he didn't buy a TV, he nicked a TV from his school. And, um, and we had a black and white TV in our house. And it was the first time I'd ever seen television as a kid. And I was about maybe eight years old. And it was at the time that um, I brought this to show, because I knew that, because I talked about this last night on one of my broadcasts, but this was the record that got me into music. Yes, man. Yes. Night of the Opera. And um, I, I can remember my uncle came to see me, uh, came to see his visit as the house we were renovating, and he took us for a ride, and he had an MGBGT, and he was a bit of a flash kit, was my uncle. And he took me and my dad for a ride in this thing, and he, it was the week that uh, Bo Bohemian Rhapsody had been released. And so, and it totally changed my life. I can distinctly remember feeling the electric, like the, the shock waves going through me, and I just thought, I can remember thinking it. Oh my God, what's this? You know, what is this thing? Because I, I, I hadn't really heard that kind of music before. My dad had sort of slightly gentler, gentler um, sort of um, taste in music in lots of ways. Um, but then it went on from there. So I, I saw Freddie Mercury perform on Top of the Pops doing We Are the Champions two years later. And that was my catalyst. I, I started being 10. I was in my first band at 12 um, and um, performing at 12, 13 years old. And then from there, it was a case of, nothing else mattered you know it was discovering bands discovering music uh i had a, I had a friend who was a, a vicar's son who was obsessed with black sabbath but his dad was a fundamentalist christian so he used to hide all his, his sabbath records in the bottom of his wardrobe whenever i used to go around to sort of see him he just used to go hey hey take this have a listen to this don't tell me dad don't <laughs> so i so i so i got i, I saw i heard um Heaven and Hell, you know, Black Sabbath and Neon Knights. That, that's kind of, in many ways, was my awakening to, to metal, rock, hard rock. Um, went back from there, and so, yeah, it was it was a, it was a youth of music. I mean, I I, I sort of, I, I I just can't remember wanting to do anything else from the first moment I got an acoustic guitar. My dad, mum and dad bought me a Fender acoustic guitar, and that was it. I taught myself. I tried to have lessons, but I was utterly useless. Um, so it was a case of teach teach. <laughs> teach myself and muddle on through you know but um but the thing for me was it was always about the songs I've, I've, i'm obsessed with songwriting and songwriters you know i'm far more interested in songwriters and songwriting than i am actually a band if i'm being honest um i'm 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 convinced that it's the greatest communication art form um that's ever existed songwriting yeah i i'm, I'm with you 100 i'm very much the same um so when did you find out you had a voice when I couldn't play guitar, there's nothing else for me to do. <laughs> That's the truth. That was the truth. I was such a useless guitar. Honestly, man, I can't even tell you how useless I am. I mean, I still am pretty useless. I really am. And it's like, it's, I just, I barely get away with it with the skin of my teeth. But I was working with Mark. Mark Plunkett was the bass player in Little Angels. You know, we were mates since we were eight years old, you know, and from the same junior school, grew up through secondary school, went to sixth form college, ended up in Little Angels, you know. Um, and we had, we were, dilly-dallying around with bands when we were that sort of, you know, I suppose when we just left junior school, that sort of thing. And um, I convinced him to get a bass because he, he played trumpet. And, um, and I said, man, you got to play, you got to play a proper instrument. Go buy a bass. Go buy, what are you yeah. going to play? And he went, oh, don't know. I said, well, get a bass. Get a bass. It's only got four strings. You only need one finger. It's not that difficult, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I was, so I told him all this stuff, you know, and he went, so we went and got a bass guitar and we had a friend who had a sort of crappy drum kit and, um, I started to try and play guitar and I was so terrible. It was such an awful racket that um, we convinced one of our friends, a guy called Wayne, to come, come and play guitar, who was really good. He was actually a genuinely good guitar player. And I thought, God, I'm going to have to do something, aren't I? I'm going to have to do something else. <laughs> the only thing left was the singing because no one else wanted to do it. 
Um, and uh, I, so that's why I, I mean, I was utterly rubbish. I mean, rubbish to start. With. I mean, rubbish. But I mean, can you can you remember like your first sort of performance, like performing to a group of people? Yeah. What, how old were you? I, was, I, was, I was 12 years old and I was playing. I played at my my brother's ninth birthday party in the church hall. My mum and dad were churchy people. I wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm an absolute total atheist, but my mum and dad were believers. My dad isn't anymore, but my mum was quite fundamental. And so we did everything in the church as kids. And um, uh, we went, it was a church hall. It was the Humanby uh, Parish Church Hall. And um, I spent a week building a stage out of my dad's scaffolding because he was a builder and, uh, and carrying bits and pieces down there for a whole week to play in front of nine of my brother's friends um, the drum riser was so tall because it was a scaffold tower. I put the drum riser. It was honestly, is this true? I've got my friends to put the drum riser. It was, it was twelve feet tall. This drum. I mean, it was <laughs> couldn't even see him. It was, it was so, so high. I was, we were. I thought, I think I made a bit of a mistake here. It was, it was, it was ridiculous. But we, but it was like for me, it was like I was, I was Freddie Mercury, yeah. a bad version of Freddie Mercury, playing a crap guitar on stage at Wembley. That's the way I felt about it. I just thought, this is it. I've arrived, you know. So yeah, I was, I was twelve. Yeah. So what, you were you were doing all those songs like Queen and stuff, or no? We were just I was playing rubbish songs that we'd written ourselves and we thought were oh, great. Right. Oh no, we weren't. We we weren't good enough to to learn someone else's songs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Please, you know. Um, that's all. Do you know that's another part of the reason why I became a songwriter and why I love it so much is that I was so genuinely terrible at playing an instrument that I couldn't learn covers. I still can't. I find it really hard. I, mean, I do my cover. I do a cover every Wednesday at the moment. I've been, I think I'm on my yeah. 20th or something, the 21st or something. You can't, I can't tell you how difficult it is. I, I, I spend all day, I spend, I've got a whole list of songs I want to play, favourite songs of all time and all that, and then I spend sort of all day trying to learn three or four of them until I find one that works because it's, it's not because they aren't great songs because I can't play them because I just, it's so, you know, I, I find it difficult. But, um, but uh, I'm I'm I prefer being a songwriter than than a mimicker of other people's music anyway. So yeah, no need to imitate. That's right, man. I'm with you 100. percent Um, going so talking about your albums and stuff. So you had you've had you're in that very well an incredible club of a number one album. Uh huh. Wow, man. I so how know. many albums was it before Jam with um Little Angels? Well, we had we we made three studio records. So the first one was "Don't Pray for Me," nineteen eighty nine, and um, the second one was "Young Gods," which was our breakthrough record. Really, that's when we started having proper hit records. I mean, we our first major hit was "Radically a Lover," which we wrote. I, me and Bruce Dickinson, not not from Iron Maiden, but um, Bruce from the Little Angels. Uh, we we co-wrote that song um, with Dan Reed, and um, when Dan Dan the Dan Reed Network were huge at the time, and they were breaking through, and they were a really hot band, and we were very lucky to get to work with Dan and I've sort of formed a lifelong friendship with him, you know, but Radical was our first major hit. I mean, believe me, that is something to experience. And I'll tell you this, it's a little anecdote and it's, this might illustrate the way that the world used to be. Right. So we were touring um, the Don't Pray For Me album and we we spent um, virtually the whole of our advance, our recording advance, which was huge at the time. We signed to Polydor Records. It was an international sort of major label and they put us in, some major studios they put us in great linford manor which was a huge studio which is no longer there's a hotel now but it was in near milton Keynes. but at the time that was the studio to work in and polydor did that to show off really oh we'll put, we'll put we've signed little angels and we're going to show to the whole world how much money we're spending on them it was like that sort of thing but we were so green all we'd really done is done a, you know we'd done maybe done half a dozen recording sessions but we've done them 
mainly on B16, tape to tape, you know, and then we'd gone and done one session on 24 track. And then we'd spent a whole bunch of time in the studio with various producers working on 24 track studios um, around London. But they were only for like one or two days. It was all demos to try and get a deal and all that. So by the time we hit Great Linford Manor, we were, we, kind of knew what we were doing but we we were not prepared for the experience of making a proper record because you got to remember back in those days it was ssl you know 48 track machines uh took two studer a80 machines you know five or six people in the studio a tape off the first engineer second engineer the producer you know someone to change the mics it was just a ridiculous cavalcade of people that were real craftsmen you know and so we were there as the kind of musicians sat at the back being told what to do you know right everyone in this room Everyone in place, that, you know, that, that was it. Off we went and recorded. But it was a real proper craft. You know, it was a really yeah. difficult thing. And you, it wasn't Pro Tools. It was, you didn't, you cut a vocal. Shane, you love this. You cut a vocal. I mean, I, it used to take probably a day just to record the vocal, just to record the vocal. Then probably two days to edit that vocal because they would, we would be doing what we call the ping pong. So it was not like Pro Tools now selecting a section of it and dropping it into the trap below and off you go. It was... Yeah. It was time consuming and meticulous and all that. So by by the time we kind of gone through a couple of those processes, and we worked with um, we worked with Eddie Kramer, who was uh, worked uh, obviously with Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. And we were desperate to work with Eddie, and we spent three weeks with him at Rockfield Studios, which is where, which is where Queen recorded that record, and yeah. um, it was a disaster. And we spunked all the money completely, and um, we had to go to Polydor and ask them for our second album's advance to record the first album because there was no money left. And we'd spent a fortune. We must have, I think we spent 60 grand. And this is going back to 1989, right? Imagine what that is. So, so just to cut to, cut to the quick. So we've gone through all this whole process. Don't pray for me. The first album hasn't worked. We'd had a couple of minor kicking up dust. had done okay. American radio kind of liked it. Europe was doing okay. But it was not by nowhere a success. We'd done 40,000 albums of that, that first record. And it was considered a total failure. So we were looking for a hit. And, and our manager at the time said, you ought to re-record Radical Your Lover, that song you wrote with Dan Reed, because I think it's a hit. We'll do it with, I've got some ideas, we'll do it with some horns, we'll do it a bit like Aerosmith. That was a whole idea to sort of ape, um, dude looks like a lady, really. That was a whole concept, really. So we go in, Polydor refused to give us the money to start with, but then they eventually managed to get 500 quid out of them. We went into Slaughterhouse Studios in Driffield and spent 24 hour, hours recording one song with a guy called Stephen Harris, who, that was his first project, and um, that song became a massive hit for us. Now, wow. so what happened was, I mean, this is, this is funny, but right? So we're driving up the motorway to a gig in Middlesbrough Town Hall Crypt, which held about 400 people at the time. I don't even know whether it's working anymore, that venue. But above it, they had the town hall, like the Middlesbrough Town Hall. And we were waiting for the song to get the chart position for Radical Your Lover, okay? And we're in the car, in the van, the band's van, and the night before we played to 100 people, we were still in that 100, 150 people, position you know what i mean we are breaking out we're doing okay but it wasn't loads of people and didn't know what to do next and we got a call from our manager on our car phone which were about this wide <laughs> and a basically handset like that it's just sort of like hello it's one of those you know so um we got a call from him saying you've gone in at number 32 and it's going to be on the chart show in, within the next couple of hours so we pulled over on the side of the motorway heading up to middlesbrough seriously we're about an hour and a half away from remember distinctly and we're, we're in we're in this sort of waiting in this light lay by and we heard it go on the chart we're dancing around in this field and all the rest of it. Oh my God, we can't, we're in the, we're in the British charts, you know, which was an amazing achievement. It, it really was at that point, right? We put the, we then drive off, the phone goes uh, half an hour away from Middlesbrough. Same thing, manager. You're never going to believe it, but they, they're moving the gig, which had sold 200 pre-sales, something like that, 
to the town hall above that had been inundated with people phoning saying, we want to go and see this band tonight. So we played that night. In the course of two hours, we played wow. to 600 people, not 150 that we were expecting wow. to. That was the power of radio at that point. Yeah. If you were in the British charts and you were on Radio 1, everything changed. Everything changed. So we went from that, which was 150 people to 600. And then on our next album, Hammersmith Apollo sold out one week. That's the way it worked then, because that was the power of the BBC and the power of, you know what I mean? The charts and all the rest of it. So, yes, by the time we got to Jam, we'd built that head of steam. You know, we were selling out city halls and we were doing well around, around Europe and Japan and all the rest of it. And so... We were we were poised for that number one. It was it was kind of it was an amazing achievement. You know, we ex- we didn't expect it, but it wasn't a surprise because we'd worked so hard on the process. If you know what I mean, and and yeah. and the record label were amazing. I mean, I, I'm never going to slag off Polydor. They were a brilliant label to us. They worked really hard for us, and um, they achieved the success of it. And that you know, I mean, to get to get that record, we we, we sold a lot of records. You know, it was a, it was the days when everyone sold a lot of records. You know, yeah. Incredible number one. How did you feel with that number one going in? On, I mean, going in on number one, that's just that's yeah, insane. Number, surely, number, so you've had three before that. Am I right? Three albums, two, before, two, 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 albums two before, before yeah. third album, yeah. then went number one. Did you want then, then think, well, that's it now, world domination? <laughs> well, you know I mean? all, right, all right, I'll tell you another. I'm sorry if I'm boring you, please just go no, like no, that. No. No, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, so, so this this is really important, right? This is this this will illustrate to everyone who's watching this the craziness of the record industry, and it's still I still hold this anecdote as the pivotal moment where I realise how utterly ridiculous it is, and all you should be concerning yourself with is the music, right? And this is the reason. So we're playing a live gig in Piccadilly Circus. I think it must have been, I think it was a HMV or a Tower Records. I can't remember which one it was, to be all, in all honesty. But we'd been booked to play on the on that morning of release. The, the album had been released, and so we were playing it, say, the next week or something like that. And we were waiting for the chart position of the album. That was the point, right? So Polydor managed to get us a position where we were playing in the middle of the shop of this huge record store in Piccadilly Circus, right? And we were such a big, we were a big act at the time, and so the police had to close the road off. There were so many people in the street and so many people in the shop wanting to watch us play that they could, they had to close the, close the road. And me and Bruce Dickinson, after we we were going to finish this concert, this little this little gig, it was only a fifteen minute thing, you know what I mean? In front of this this open audience, we were due to get into this car and drive to the airport and get on a to go and do a press junket straight from the stage. That was the whole plan. So we're in the middle of this gig with this gig. At which point our manager runs onto the stage, stops the audit, stops the stops the gig, and says, "We've got it at number one." That, and that was the whole thing. And the place went oh, be nuts. You know, it's like, "Oh my god!" We were like, "Oh, we can't believe this is incredible. We've arrived." What a, what a feeling, a staggering feeling. So we bundled up through this crowd, people ripping at your clothes, all, all the things you can you can think of. We think, "Oh my god, this is it. We've arrived." You know, get in this car, and the car had a. Um, we were with our manager, and, and he had a mobile phone. I didn't. None of us had phones at the time. Of course, it was days when not many people had them. Yeah. But the phone went, and it was my wife, my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, saying, um, "Have you got any money? Because we can't pay our rent." So that was like I went, "Oh." So here I was, number one album, playing to an audience where they closed the street off in the in our capital city. By the, the police were closing it off. There was cordons. I'm in a car. 
heading to the airport to go and do a press junket and I'm absolutely skint. Mm. To the point where I couldn't afford my rent. So I had to borrow some money off the band. I remember it distinctly. I had to get some money somehow. And at the time, you couldn't even transfer money like you can now. You know, it was like no, someone no, had to no. go to the <laughs> bank and put the money in. It was that sort of thing. So I managed to sort of organise this, panicking. And, and, I, and, I'm, and next time I'm on a plane to Austria with champagne in the in the plane. You know, this this is the that was the that's the world. And that hasn't. I don't think that's changed for musicians. You know what I mean? No, you, no. Doesn't matter how successful you might think you are, the reality is a lot of the time we've all got full-time jobs, we've got kids, we've got families, and you're trying to make ends meet. I mean, I wasn't married at the time, I didn't have children, you know, etc. But I still was in a position where the band weren't making any money, and I was people probably thought I had a yacht and a you know drove around in a Ferrari. You know, it was crazy. Wow. That is the highs and lows. It's insane. So have on all that success, doesn't that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you're successful sort of financially? Um, wow. Yeah, nuts, man, nuts. But but you know what? The great, great, great life lessons. Yeah, yeah. And what, what year would what year was that, Toby? What 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 year was that? Well, that was nineteen ninety three. Yeah, yeah. And we generally the other thing, you know, we'd we'd spent so much of that year touring. We'd, we'd, we 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 never stopped touring. I mean, that that was the thing, you know, from the Young Gods tour right through to the end of the band, really. Um, we just didn't stop, you know. We toured with Van Halen, uh, you know, and um, the, the, the only time they came to the UK really in, in Europe for and did that whole of their 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 sort of arena tour with them, and we went from that to Bon Jovi, you know, that was stadium that was a stadium tour we did them on the Keep the Faith tour, um, and we toured with, I mean, God, we just toured with so many acts, and of course touring on our own as well, and we just didn't stop, you know. It was a, it was a, a, a never ending sort of process. I think I was at home six weeks in 1993, you know. It was absolutely nuts, you know. Um, and so you kind of get used to the process of that, and you're living like you know, it's like you know, it's like you're living on the road, you're living in a tour bus, you're living on planes, you're living on in cars. It, it's you know, it's actually not as glamorous as people might think it is. It's a absolute strain and a drain half the time, but it's it's just for me, it was just that 45 minutes on stage or the hour on stage, it's the only thing I care about. And so, all you put up, I'm sure you'll agree, you put up with the rest of it for that, you know. Oh, 100%. I think we're all a bit insane, really, because I mean, we love it. We love it that much. You wouldn't. Who, what normal sane person would do that? You know what I mean? This. You're absolutely right. For that reason alone, just for the love of it, um, crazy. <laughs> did, did Did you find that the '93 was that like a, a changing point in music? Like you said, there's different changing points earlier with with yeah. the virus, and there's been others. Did yeah. you feel like if that would have been maybe the late '80s, it might have been different financially or was it kind of going there a lot earlier than anyway the 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 80s the the end of the 80s and our my my, my experience of that was that the record industry was at its height there really um there was it was you know if you weren't selling a million records first album out of the box then yeah. you were a failure that was the way to look at it and you think about all those bands like slaughter and vixen and you know i don't know skid row and all those bands from the americans specifically because yeah. they lived yeah. in that country and they had that access to that massive audience they were regularly selling i mean i can remember people talking about bands like um i don't know love hate or someone like that selling three million copies of their debut album or whatever it was you know and like that was kind of normal that was like, oh yeah, well, they've only done three million, you know. It's like it was that sort of thing, you know. But that put them on the road to this enormous success, you know. So there's a kind of you have to sort of look at that, you know. It was a whole, whole, wholly different time, and the record industry was able to do that. I mean, I always remember with with, with the young, with, with sorry, with um, with the Jam album, I went to go to A H Smiths about three days before the band was the, the album was released, and I was living in London at the time, and I walked around this corner, and what greeted me was one of those enormous 
sign, you know, like a, like a roadside sign, like a huge one of those um, clear channel signs, you know, the huge things, you know, like 20 foot tall and 80 foot wide, you know, it just, it just said Little Angels Jam album out tomorrow. And I'm like, I didn't even know they'd done that. I'm looking at this thing going, I've got a plastic bag with me, me, me sort of me pen and me, me pencil sharpener in it or something. You know? And I'm looking at this thing thinking, who's paid for that? You know, and like, <laughs> but you know what the most amazing thing was is that they put one of those awnings in every single major town in the country. Wow. And I found out later on that each one cost £15,000. So they were flush with money. And so they didn't, it was like opulence beyond belief. And even though that money was ultimately coming out of my pocket because it's all about re recoupables and all the rest of it, um, ultimately they were able to do that. Right. It was unchecked is what it was. It was unchecked. And then, of course, the 80s finished and we got into the 90s. And then what really happened was there was just a change in the atmosphere, a change in music, exciting things like Nirvana started happening and, and, and the grunge scene exploded. And I was a massive fan of that. People always go, well, the grunge scene killed rock. No, it didn't. Go listen to go listen to Nevermind. Let's get yeah. solo go over it. I mean, I mean, you've 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 resonated with us, there because '93 is when me and him started getting into a band, and Nirvana exploded, and all we wanted to do was just get in a room and make noise. And then it's great bands like the Beatles, Queen, um, Bob Dylan for Shane. Um, there's you know Tom Jones, just numerous numerous artists with great songs, as you said earlier, just inspired yeah. myself and him there to carry on and be in a band and play a memorial hall to. I don't even know what that gig was. I think we were playing La Bamba or something. <laughs> it was just like, it was random at 13, 14. But if it wasn't for that energy and that, yeah. watching that um, Nirvana teen, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit in a in a school gym, it yeah. was every, everybody just wanted to, to kind of do it. Like, you know, that was the, yeah. that was the thing. So, yeah, I mean, the grunge, the, grunge, the grunge explosion was kind of like the punk rock explosion that happened to me when I was a kid. I mean, I can remember 1977 when Nevermind the Bollocks came out and, you know, and I had a friend called Barney who was, was literally the archetypal punk. He had the mohawk and the, 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 the sort of 20-eye docks up to his knees and the, and the jeans and all. And, and me and him were great mates. And I used to have me, me denim jacket with status quo drawn in on biro on the back, you know, and all that, you know, me sort of hair. And all. I, was, I was the rocker. He was the punk. And, but we were great friends. And he introduced me to all that whole, that whole scene. And, and I, I feel I felt very energized by that as a kid, listening to this kind of street music. Essentially, is what it is. It's the only street music that Britain's ever produced, really. Um, I, know, I know it kind of originated in America, but the reality was is that Britain took it and made it into something of a real art form. And I think that whole process of anyone can play music, and so they should. You know, none of this kind of preserve of the likes of the Genesis's and the Pink Floyd's at the time, which is what really dominated were dominating at the time. But it took away that need to to have to feel that you were. Um, you, you know, if you, you you were sort of uh, there was a lot of insecurity about being a musician back then because of all this incredible. Well, I'm not knocking Pink Floyd or Genesis at all; fantastic bands made amazing records. But it was kind of highfalutin. It was a bit like you ought to be a bit of a scientist to be in a band, really. You know, it was a bit like that. Whereas, like you know, the punk thing and and you know, it was was the same thing as grunge. It just it just knocked the doors off. It went anyone can do this. Actually, what's important is what you're saying. What's important yeah. is the thing that you're contributing to your 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 generation and how you talk about those messages and how you bring that to, to to the fore. And that was the important thing. And I think I felt that when Nirvana happened. I mean, I remember being in the shop on a first third. Smells like Teen Spirit. You know, um, it was in Leeds. We were on tour. We were playing Leeds TNC. I went and wandered into this music store and um, I heard this music. And I went to the guy at the counter and said, what the hell is that? And he goes, oh, it's this new band, Nirvana, you know. And um, 
I just thought it was absolutely stunning and still do. You know, I still think Nevermind's one of the great rock records ever made, you know? Yeah. 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 Love yeah, that. that that definitely lit a flame with us, and um, a lot of bands around our area as well kind of caught onto that, and they went on to to sell uh, thousands of records, and you know what I mean. So it did it created a scene, mm. um, especially where we're from. It, it just almost ignited that because um, rock was always massive in Wales anyway. Like you know, it's. Oh, mate, listen, I have I have a love affair with 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 Wales because of because of the rock and roll man. I spent so many of my formative years. Driving down from, can you believe this? Driving down from Scarborough to settle five in the morning, drive yeah. all the way down to sort of Tonopandy and play the Naval Club or play yes. My Stake 4 7 Club or or play Bogies in its original form when it was under the arches. And, you know, man, we used to, and Lanharan Rugby Club, we used to play a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Newport, Lasers, and, and oh, man, yeah. honestly, we, 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 we played we, to feel at home there, you know? We, we played Bogies when we were 15, 16, Shane. Um, because our mate's dad took us there and I genuinely shit my pants because it was gothic. It was really, really gothic. Oh, yeah. I'd never seen anything like that. Obviously, I had my kind of knitted jumper on and I was I was in my grunge era. And then all of a sudden you start seeing what I thought were vampires. Um, and it just blew my mind. And then we started traveling a bit more. So we did our TJs and and like you just said, then um, Plan Aaron Rugby Club. That's, that's mad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same path. Oh, it was brilliant. Um, it was brilliant. And we, we, we sort of opened for a lot of really cool Welsh bands. I mean, I remember there was a, we um, opened for this band called, um, oh, what the hell were they called? It was one of the guys that used to be in Budgie. I forget their name. I forget what they were called now. Um, but they, but they, there was a lot of those acts that were, that were dragging around, you know, uh, and there was um, Nev's band, you know, that were at Cougar. I don't know if you remember that band, Cougar, yeah. that were, Nev McDonald had. And, you know, that we opened for them a number of times and got to know those guys and, um it, it, it was it was a brilliant brilliant scene down there. I mean, actually, it was you know there was for us it was the northeast. It was like Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Morpeth, all those all around there, all those kind of that kind of area where we sort of got a toehold, and South Wales, the valleys. Mm-hmm. The two areas were, and there was nothing in the middle. I mean, you know, we we'd go and play Birmingham or Sheffield initially to start with, but like it'd just be a load of people sort of like spitting at you or you know like. <laughs> or whatever you know, the standard yeah. thing you know like only oh, like, oh, you know like yeah, sort of, yeah. you know the, the light show was one light bulb literally we did this one gig <laughs> we did this one gig where the light show was a guy literally with his arm around the corner turning the light switch on and off that, that that's what we, that, that was it and we, we honestly yeah. we really, that's true that was true and and the, and the mid and, the, and midway through the show, we got to remember we were all dressed in spandex and we've got air like I've still got and all the rest. And we're all playing. Brucey's got his his Les Paul. We've got Marshalls for days and all that. <laughs> there was one person in the audience, one, and I think he wandered in incorrectly. And he and in the midst of a song, he went, "Are you using a microphone? Oh, what? I can't hear a word he's saying." That was that was his comment. <laughs> I thought I'm not to turn up at all. Honestly, that's class. Uh, I love it. That kind of leads me lovely into the. Uh, do you mind taking a few questions, Toby? No, from no, the no, fans? Um, if I'm keeping you too long, I'm going to talk like fuck. No, 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 no. I love it. Love it. It's cold. It's, it's great, mate. Um, so, question for Toby: With the vast experience you've had in bands from Little Angels, uh, Fastway Gun, Whole Truth, and Our Wayward Sons, what has been some of your most memorable moments? Maybe one from each band. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Pete, for that. Um, I would say with with uh, it's, it's there's too many to mention with, with Little Angels in many many ways um, because it was an extraordinary 
an absolute once in a lifetime opportunity and experience. You know, we went from yeah. tiny, you know, little kids, literally little kids in a tiny little buttfuck town in, in northeast of England to the world stages and the number one records. And so that that was every inch of the way was extraordinary. But the one moment I always think about with Little Angels, and it hasn't it weirdly, because I could say, oh, yeah, playing the Royal, selling out the Royal Albert Hall, selling out Hammersmith. It was amazing. Getting a number one record. Those things are extraordinary. Of course they are there, but they're kind of in many ways, they're sort of, they become part of the story because the story itself is so important, if you know what I mean. It's, it's so, but what I remember one thing else is we opened for Guns N' Roses the first time they ever came to the, to the UK at the Marquee Club in Wardour Street. And we went down um, in our green van. Um, not, I'd heard one song by them. They'd released It So Easy. And my mate who ran a record store said to me, I'd gone in to see him and I said, have oh, you got anything by Guns N' Roses? We got a call because the guy that used to run the marquee, a guy called Bush Telfer, who's an amazing bloke, fat legend, loved our band. And he just used to put us on uh, the marquee club all the time. So we became a resident a resident band in the, in the marquee, really. Um, and for one one or two, one summer, really, straddling into two, we, we played pretty much all the time, open to so many bands. But one of the very first times we played there, he rang us up and said, well, there's this band coming in from America, Guns N' Roses. Would you open for them on this coming Sunday? They're doing two nights. Uh, I think Choir Boys open the Saturday, we open the Sunday. So I went to see my mate and he played with his track and I thought it was amazing. I think this is the punk rock. It sounds like the Pistols love it. This is going to be great. But they weren't anything. No one, they hadn't broken. Nobody knew who the hell they were. So we wandered down to see this, to sort of open for this band. And um, to cut a long story short, they were the most authentic rock and roll band I've ever come across in my life, ever. They smelt bad. Their gear was fucked. <laughs> they were fighting with each other. <laughs> the sound check was louder than I've any, ever heard anything in my entire life. Slash was stood up against four Marshall st- cabinets, you know, like two one on top of each other, with on full, everything on full, with his ear against it, trying, going, saying to the sound guy, I mean, this place only old, only old family with 500 people, with his, with, with his ear up against his Marshalls going, I can't hear it, man. Can he turn it up, man? I'll say, you can't hear that. Are you, are you joking? <laughs> You know, it was so we didn't know what the hell to expect, and they played that. They, we played our gig. We went down well, and I went out into the audience, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And it, it changed Little Angels. It changed my attitude towards music. They played a set of songs I'd never heard in my life to a racked audience that were you could hear, have heard in between, apart from the the, the cheering and the, and the screaming for them after they finished. When they stopped all the screaming and the cheering, you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah, because the audience was so enwrapped by by Axel and the band and what he had to say. And no one had ever heard those songs. It, they were playing, they played 45 minutes or 50 minutes. They played something like nine songs, two of which were covers. The rest were off Appetite for Destruction. And by the end of each song, I thought I, I knew that song all my life. Wow. It was a lesson of utter understanding that songs are all, all that matters. Because I didn't give a shit that he was wearing a, a fur coat on stage. I thought he looked like a prat, frankly, especially <laughs> under them lights. But, but you know, but the reality was I was singing Paradise City. I was singing Sweet Child of Mine, second chorus in. Wow. Right? I never heard them before in my life. And I, I spoke to Axel. I, mean, I, I had a conversation with Axel after the gig. I knocked on the door really gingerly as, a, as this little kid. I was like wide-eyed, you know. And he came to the door and he opened it and goes, what do you want, man? And I goes, um... Oh God, I, I just wanted to say how amazing the show was. Let's go to the bar. So he drags me to the bar and we sat just talking 15, 20 minutes. And I just said to him, how did you get that good? I mean, I can't, I've never seen anything like this. You know, this is just the most incredible thing I've ever seen. He goes, and he just said to me, he says, 
it's all about rehearsals. He said, we rehearsed our arses off. He said, we did not leave our rehearsal room until we knew we had that album in, in place, until we had those songs, until we knew we were good enough. We said we rehearsed eight hours a day, seven days a week. We lived in this, a roller door, like it was a roller door. Um, I think he said it was like a lockup. And yeah, um, they built they built bunks out of out of waste timber, and ate off barbecue like portable barbecues. That but all they did was rehearse every day, all day. And you you could have heard a pin drop in our van when we drove back to Scarborough that night. I mean, we, and we changed. We went from rehearsing twice a week to rehearsing six days a week, eight hours a day. Wow. And that to me is that that was the that's my memory of that the greatest moment of, of Little Angels because it was the greatest moment of realization of what we needed to do to become a real band, if you know what I mean. So, so that, that, that was that one. <laughs> I know it's mad. It is, it's true. So, um, so that's all that, that one. I mean, um, I mean, I, I had some fantastic times in bands. I mean, I, I, I worked with Gunn for a while and those guys were brilliant. And I think Dante and, and Giuliano were fantastic songwriters and there were some great moments. We, we headlined, um, we headlined uh, um, a venue in, I forget which one it was, it's the, um, the big academy in, in Glasgow, headlined it, you know, and I, I'd been, I'd only been in the band about six months or so. And I saw the power of that band, you know, Scottish lads, hometown show, yeah, unbelievable reception. And, and I saw what that music meant to their fans. And I was absolutely blown away by that. That was an incredible experience. Work, And they were such gentle people and such nice guys. They were a joy to work with. So I'd just say that their working with those guys was was enough of a highlight, frankly. Um, working with Fast Eddie Clark was an experience in Fast Way. I mean, Eddie was um, the single most honest man I've ever met in my life. Taught me more lessons than I knew. I went in. I started working with him back in 2007, and we did download. And you know, I got asked to join us uh, to to replace um, the original singer from Fast Way who didn't want to do it. Uh, and my now agent and manager, um, um, one of my managers, Steve Strange, who runs X-Ray Touring. Steve was the drummer in the band. And we toured all over the world with that. We went to Japan and, and that was extra extraordinary. But it was actually, in some respects, surviving Eddie, which was the which was the uh, the challenge. Because he was a real enfant terrible. You know, he really, and he was, like I say, the most honest man I've ever met, the most um, challenging uh, re um, relationship I've ever had to endure and, and, and almost in, in a way it was a bit of a survival survi surviving it with him but in a really good way I learned so much from the guy and it was one of the saddest things that's ever happened to me um, when, he, when he passed away because even though we struggled with each other a little bit um, I, I learned so much from the man and um, I carry that with me now you know what I mean I carry those those lessons of how to deal with people because you couldn't have got a nicer guy really underneath it all and he just wanted to do good he wanted it was all about the fans for him and it, I was the same as that you know so again relationship based Fred, Eddie was an extraordinary extraordinary person to work with and changed me completely and what else we got uh, so yeah I mean the whole truth was an experience and when I was making my first solo record that was um, difficult because I was it was the end of the Little Angels and it was very very angry about the whole period and I, I, I wrote a my first solo record, which is entirely about that whole process, because I realised, you know, quite a lot, of, quite a lot of years ago, that the only thing that you need to be as a songwriter is a hundred percent honest. You have to give a piece of yourself every time you write a song. Doesn't matter where that piece comes from, whether it's a good place or a bad place, you've got to give a piece of yourself to that to, to that that concept. Otherwise, it has no authenticity. It's not real. Um, and so, I, I completely and utterly did that with the whole Truth album, and. Um, and I'm really glad I've, I've just re-released it actually, and it's it's doing okay, you know. So I'm um, I'm very pleased that people have got a chance to hear it because it, it got buried. It was a it was a that was a bad experience, sadly. And with Wayward Sons, I'm just really happy to even be 
doing it again. You know, I didn't do it for any great grand plan. I did it because I wanted to have fun and chuck my guitars about. Yeah, that was exactly yeah, right. <laughs> and um, yeah, so no, look, Wayward Sons, Wayward Sons has turned into something I didn't expect. I did it because I got asked to do it. I had no intention of ever being in a band ever again, but I got asked by some cool people, you know, with Frontiers, you know, a little label, as you know, um, and those guys approached me and said, look, we'll, we'll help you make a record and, and get you back in the saddle. And I went, well, I'm not certain I want to be back in that saddle again. Um, and they went, well, let's see what happens, you know? And I went, okay, you know, fair enough. And I made, I made the first album with some friends. It was literally, we chinked glasses at the beginning of the making of it. And I said, look, whatever happens, let's just have some fun. Let's not care too much about, um, you know, getting overwrought by the nature of all this. Let's just enjoy this. And the album came out and did really, really well and prompted a second record, you know? And I think what I've loved about that, the process is that, it's been completely natural. There has been no, like I said, there's no grand plan. There was no, there was no, right, I'm going to take back the world. I'm going to be a big artist again. It was nothing like that. And actually the atmosphere of that and the, and the, the reason why it's worked is because there's no, it hasn't been that at all. I've stepped onto the stage every single time I've played with that band and enjoyed just being there. You know what I mean? Just wanting to play with the guys. And I, I genuinely don't care what anyone thinks about it. <laughs> just... I yeah. just enjoy it, you know, and um in that sort of respect, are you enjoying it more now than you ever did, kind of? Because there isn't that pressure, there's just you being you, I guess. Yeah, I think that's tough. Shane, that's absolutely nail on the head there, um uh, head of the nail there. It's um it's just a joy. I mean, yeah. I I don't I, I the only the only thing I care about is the songs and the music. And that's you know, I I, I even though this the Wayward Sons is, is like I say, it didn't start out as a serious project, it's turned into a serious project. Um, because I focused all of my energies on just writing the songs. I thought, I'm just going to write some great songs. That's all I want to do. I just want to write the best songs I can, record them and see what happens. It's not. I'm not concerned about headlining places anymore. I don't, I'm not bothered about I just want to have a go again, you know, just do it properly and have some fun. And so because I went in with that attitude, it was completely that. I just cared about the audience. I, all I really give a toss about was whether the audience liked the music or not. Um, and so far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And like all through, what I'm getting here from questions and stuff, um, the people have followed you from pretty much day one. Mm, I mean, yeah. some lovely comments here. I got to read this out to you. Edwards, uh, Toby, do you remember in the early days playing many times in a bowling alley in Wokenham called the Big Apple, and a warm-up show in Reading in the Central Club? I do. Day as her birthday, and you all sang to her thirty years ago. I remember it and I remember it because the stage was made out of stage blocks and as we started to play and they started coming apart and um, I would put my feet down between these daft stage blocks. Yeah, and I remember singing it to her. I actually do. I remember that, that Phil Wilding, the the um, the, uh, the guy that was a journalist at Kerrang! at the time, came to that gig uh, and reviewed that show for us. Oh, I remember that very well. I remember the Wokingham shows like they were yesterday. It was uh, That was a brilliant gig, that was, run by a friend of mine. I mean, I still know, I'm still friends with the guy, you know. Um, it was a great scene, man. You know, it was that whole mm -hmm. period, a brilliant scene. You know, I think, funnily enough, there's a friend of mine who um, uh, who was in a band um, at the same time, um, who's who's now he works in television, and um, I forget what the hell they're called. I'm terrible with names and things. I'm awful. But anyway, he, um, Claytown Group, the Claytown Group, uh, the Tate, Claytown, the Claytown Troop. That's what they were called, and they did pretty well. You know, they were signed. I think they were signed to Virgin. I think, and. Um, and uh, and um, my mate, you know, Christian, he was the singer in the band and he rang me a couple of days ago. He goes, oh man, we've got to do so. I've got an idea. I said, what? And he goes, we've got to talk about our era, man. No one talks about our era. And I thought, actually, that's very true. You know, everyone talks about the pre-period, but no one talks about that period, which was really, really, a very, 
very successful for, for British rock and roll. Actually, one of the periods of successful guitar music, you know, Thunder, or the Almighty, Little Angels, yeah, you know, yeah. um, Choir Boys, uh, Dogs Do More, you know, um, and then that went on to Therapy. It led into Terrorvision. It led into, you know, there was a whole plethora of bands that were precursors to what we now regard as kind of like, I don't know, the rock bands that, that meant something, you know, um, and they were all major label signings and they, we did really really well i mean there was there wasn't a week that we didn't go by that there wasn't a thunder single in the in the charts or a little angel single in the charts or you know or whatever or, or the or the almighty and we were all headlining big shows but it hardly ever gets talked about and so he's he's planning on trying to do um a kind of like a, a book and, a, and a, he works in film and television and he wants to talk about that period and i hope he does because it's kind of a bit of it's a bit of a forgotten era really you know um yeah. you know Sounds fantastic well, to a bunch of old farts like us, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. You, um, go on, go on, Ed. No, 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 go, go on. on. I, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I find it amazing because you've done everything from songwriting, producing, being in a band, writing a book. Um, I followed you through the, the through the lockdown because everybody I found very interesting through the lockdown on who's creating what and I oh, love yeah. the the busking in the kitchen, mate. Um, <laughs> now you've evolved that to the Patreon, the podcasting. Mm. That's a lot of energy. That's that's, mm. but I love that. So you're obviously passionate about everything you do, mm. and and you can see that you channel it all into the art, and that, that's mm. why I'm kind of glad we had you on because you've you've answered about fifteen questions in one way. You've, you've kind of said Sorry. no 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 but i love it because i've always wondered bloody hell fair play he never you know he, he's never stopping which i i find inspiring and and shane does um and i think any band should um if you're constantly thinking of new things how to evolve how to do this um because we're exactly the same we're 100 miles per hour and it's how to channel mm. down the right route oh, yeah. um, but i can tell and i'm really really glad to talk to you tonight that the passion is still there and it and now I understand why it's the art that drives you. It's not the um, I'm trying to make millions from this because you're you're very realistic on where you are and the foundations that's been laid and everything. Um, but it's more about the the creative side of it. You've got to get that out, and oh, and and I've still got stories to tell from that, and I haven't got that out yet, and I haven't done, and I love that, Toby. That's mm. I think well, that's amazing. It. Well, listen, I really appreciate you saying that. That's a very generous comment. Um, I I think at the end of the day. Um, you only have yourself to either blame or celebrate, you know, and I, I think, you know, for me, I, I bubble all every day with with with, mu with music and art. I, I can't help myself. And I'm sure it's the same for you guys. I don't wake up and it's, I wake up and it's the first thing I'm thinking about. It's the last thing I'm thinking about when I'm going to bed. And it's not because it's a burden. It's because it, I just can't help myself. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a curse, actually, in a crazy way, because, you know, the amount of times my wife says, haven't you finished yet? Have you not? You know, and we've been, and we've been, we've been married twenty six years. Are you still working? Yeah. And, I, and I ain't spotted the time. You know, and I've, I've, I like when I've been in studios. You know, I mean, I often sort of say to people, I earn about four pound thirty an hour when I work in a studio because I'll do 17, 18 hour days. Yeah, yeah. If I'm recording a band and they've got, they've got two weeks to make an album, I'm the yeah. first one in and the last one out because I'm the producer. You know, and I've got, I'm holding the reins and it's my production vision and I'm trying to work with you know etc etc so there's a kind of process that you go through which is just unrelenting and I've never been I've never been short of stamina I think if I've got one thing I know I might not have a lot of quality in some respects in some areas but I certainly have a lot of stamina and I think stamina counts for, counts for an awful lot in this game frankly you know um you just got to keep going and as long as you as long as you're enjoying it guys that's that's the thing I think the most important thing is you've got to stop thinking that it's a job it's not a job 
it's a it's vocational you know it, it turns into a job and of course there are job aspects of it but the reality is if you start thinking about it as a job all the joy goes out of it. believe me i've been there you know I, yeah. it's you know we, we've said that toby we um because we've done the, the like we, we've been in bands in the past and you think you're getting there and then it all collapses or the foundations go or somebody's left the band you have to start again and then you rebuild and you keep going you keep going with this band we've always been honest from day one um we've said it to many guests who've come on yet i think that's kind of a an asset and why we work so well we've always been honest with each other like you said about the the, the glass in the air and the ching let's have fun um then lately there's become a real reality of where we are and what we've achieved. So it's kind of building on that and not becoming mm. complacent mm. and appreciate in the moments, which mm. Mm. I think I, I can't remember half the moments from the past because some of them do fly by. And then you yeah. it's only when you kind of sit there and you kind of go, oh, wow, we did do that or we did do this. Because when you're in that moment, you are constantly thinking of what's next, what's next, what's next. Yeah. And that's um, natural because that's natural because that's a process, you know. I mean, I think you know, yeah. being musicians, music, music, musicians, you know, we're, you know, we're all very passionate people, you know. I, I, I you know, I, I always sort of say to people, look, I don't go into this. You know, people have slagged off music of mine, which has happened a lot, you know. I say, well, reality is, I don't go into studios to make a shit record. Yeah, you know, I go into studios to make as good an album as I possibly can, and and it's yeah. just it's just whether the timing's right or whether you know or whether. So, because the passions never never changes, the passion's always the same. And the moment the passion goes, everything goes. You know, um, when I've watched you guys emerge, and you know that everything you've done, you've taken care of business. You know, you've taken care of exactly the right things, which is your fans and building it slowly, and and being careful, and and um, and making and writing, writing, and, and recording great, great, great songs. And and that that's all you need. That is all you need. I mean, you know, I get asked so many times, what do you think is the key to the to success in the music business? And I go, well, here's the thing. Biggest piece of advice I could give you is nobody knows anything. They don't. I've I've been in boardrooms full of with people, twenty people down sides of boardrooms where they're all going, they're all talking over each other, and they're saying, "Well, what are we going to release?" And I go, I, "I can remember about Womankind, which ended up being our biggest hit, single. Polydor didn't want to release it, and I and I said, "Well, we've got to release that." I said, Why? Because I'd read I'd read, and I believe this anyway, but I'd read an interview with Elton John, and Elton John was asked this question: "What do you do when you make a record, Elton? How do you decide? Because you had so many hits." How do you decide how which songs to release again? And he just pondered a bit and he went, I record the album and I release the best song. And I just thought that's that's it. That that um, sums it up completely. You know, you can talk yourself out of problems and you, into problems rather. You can talk yourself out of the best decisions you ever you could possibly ever make. Trust your fucking instincts. Boom. You that's, as, it. that's it. You as your bat, you as your band, yeah. you as your band are the only people that know. No record company boss does, no manager does, no tour manager does, no girlfriend, wife, friend does. You guys as a collective entity understand more than anybody else, above the fans, above everyone, because you have to do it for yourselves. And you know, you have to know precisely what it is you want to be. Believe in it. That's all I can say. It's the only chance you've got. And as long as your songs are strong enough and you develop that and you have a focus on the music, You've got every any band's got a chance. There's no mystery as to why you guys are having a, having success. It's because you concentrate on the right stuff, and and you've got passionate belief in yourselves, and that's evident. That's all we have. The moment you start believing the bullshit and 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 the people that surround you beyond your own instincts, it's over. I'm telling you. Yeah. Mate, that, that, I want to get up and stand on the That was incredible. Yay! It's so spot on. It's that is what it's all about. 
And Shiner's going to have a trouble with his one-liner later on, because that, that one line you just said there, that was it. He ain't beating that. <laughs> one-liner Shiner, that was great. And that's why you make a great mentor for up-and-coming bands as well, and they should take on that advice. If there's any bands listening tonight and they've ever spoken to Toby or they want his advice, take it, because it's it's there. It's there to take, like, you know, and... and we understand that it resonates completely with us. That's 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 perfect. That is like it's, it's the whole truth. See what it's, been 30, it's been thirty years in the making, boys, and I've had a lot. Of, <laughs> I've had a lot of ups and an awful lot of downs, and you just got <laughs> to pick yourself up and carry on, you know. And um, the only the only thing that matters is the only thing that matters is the work. I mean, actually, that's that's a quote from Eddie Clark. You know, I mean, that was one thing on a plane flying back from somewhere or other, and he, he said, "What do you think it's all about, then, Toby? What do you think it's all about, mate?" And I said, "Uh." So man, I, I I think he's. I said when I when I think about it, Ed, all I'm really care about is the songs I write. And he goes, absolutely fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's uh, it's all about the work, man. It's all about the work. Amazing. So sold out Albert Hall. What what was that like? Was sold out? Fucking hell. Heartbreak, heartbreaking because it was the last gig we ever played. Um, I mean, you know, the the, 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 sad, the sadness of it is is that I didn't take my own advice at that point. I didn't listen to my instincts. I didn't challenge the the, the controlling elements that were looking after the band at the time. Um, I didn't stand up and say you're a bunch of twats. And actually, we 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 can still carry on with this because we were talked out of our band. That's the truth ah, of it. Shit. We were yeah. talked out of it. You know, we, we, I can remember, boys, how about this? I can remember coming off, well, being on the stage. This last song we ever played with Little Angels was Don't Pray For Me to that sold out audience. And I, people, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's the truth. But people, I could see the audience were in tears. They didn't know why we were, we're finishing. And the sadness is, I didn't know either. I didn't know why the band was splitting up. I hadn't got a clue. I'd just been told it was happening. That's the truth. Do you know now or? I, I, in hindsight, I realised that there were, without putting too fine a point on it, people machinating the situation behind our backs, using the excuse of, oh, music's changing, oh, Polydor don't want to support the band, and it's bollocks. I, I've sat yeah. down with the MD of Polydor years later, and he told me that that wasn't true, that they wanted to support the band, they wanted to carry on working with the band, but um, the powers that be that were in control of all these things didn't didn't um, didn't, didn't want it to happen. And, and the reality is that... When you're a bunch of youngsters, because we were, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I got my first record deal when I was 20 years old, you know, so in a major record label, you know, yeah, um, yeah. so we were closeted and held in, in position by a group groups of people. A lot of it was all very well intentioned, but it was a different period of time and people reacted differently and things were different and, you know, the, the system was different. And, and so we were made to sort of like, we didn't ask questions. We were just told what to do a lot of the time, you know. So you arrive at that position where we sold seven and a half thousand tickets um, to the Royal Albert Hall. In fact, we hold, we still hold the record. I mean, it's, again, it's a bit of a brag, but I don't care. Um, mm -hmm. Little Angels hold the record of the most amount of people in the Albert Hall ever. And that's by default. I mean, it was by default. They were, they were actually renovating the seats on the upper tiers and they removed them all. And the, the guy that managed the, the building at the time, he, he came to us and said, look, there's so many people queuing up down the streets. I'm prepared to let them in. I think it was 500 or 600 people above our normal capacity um, on a cheaper ticket, as long as they're willing to stand up in the top upper tiers. And they did that. So we ended up having 500 more in than was, was normally required or was allowed, you know. Um, 
So you're standing out in front of that audience, playing in front of those people, with people in tears, all the Little Angels T-shirts, with Barry Drinkwater, who was our merchandise guy at the time, saying, I don't understand why you guys are breaking up. You could be in Wembley next time. Wembley, what are you doing? And I'm going, well, Barry, you don't understand, man. You don't understand. Well, actually, really, I was breaking, it was breaking my heart, right? And so years later, the, the, it, it, it's just because that was the way it was engineered in lots of ways. Do you think there'll ever be a reunion? Well, we had a reunion in 2012. We did that in 2012. We played Download. We played the second stage in Download on 2011. Um, I think we will. I think there's a, it's a good chance, and that's a little bit of an exclusive for you guys. I think we probably will. Um, yeah. More so than ev- more so now than ever before, perhaps, because we're coming to some great points in our um, our history now. You know, like our, our sort of, like, next year is 30, 30 years. Oh, is it 30 years since the release of... <laughs> <laughs> of um, young gods you know wow. 1991 you know um and the year out uh, 2023 will be the release of uh the jam album right so there's a good reason to do it i mean I, i'm not see here's the thing for me i've turned it down loads of times we've talked about it many times there's been talk of us doing another album turned that down flat i'm not interested in being little angels again i'm not i think we we're of the moment that's those that music stands up well for its era and I think it is, there are some classic moments on there, and I'm really, really proud of the records. But for us to go and make another album and retry and recapture that as a bunch of 50-somethings, never going to happen, never going to work. But right. in terms of actually playing shows and saying thank you to the fans, there's a very good chance that we will do that, I think. I um, yeah, and I it's, but, it will be, but it will be big shows. It will be, um, I'm hoping, I'm, you know, we have had some conversations with various people. So there's a good chance that we'll do a select amount of shows and just do a kind of like celebration of of maybe the maybe the Young Gods album or whatever, and take some other bands out with us and have a have a real good party like a couple of weeks or something, and that'll be it. No more. You know. Well, you've just made a lot of people happy there, mate. I know there's it's it's exploding. <laughs> yeah. Hey man, it's, hey listen, it's the only reason we do it. It's the only reason we did it was to keep the fans happy, man. That's all all, all it was was for us, really. You know. There we go. Take my money. Yeah, take my money. (laughs) Uh, We've got any more questions off the the fans for Toby there, Shane? Um, I've I've kept him so long now. I'm really sorry about this. He's gone on for an hour. Toby, thank you, honestly, mate. It's been brilliant. I love that. But I mean, there's basically, you've answered a few. There's basically asking, um, would it be a reunion? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. there's, there's a really lovely comment here. Annie Joyce, she says, 30 years ago, she convinced the boy to travel from London to Cheshire to see Little Angels in Warrington. They were pen pals at the time. That was the internet date another of the 90s. Um, and Annie and that boy just celebrated their 24th wedding anniversary. That's amazing. Oh, so brilliant. You're like the Silla Black of the rock world. <laughs> ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Hey, listen, you, <laughs> there is nothing more sobering the people coming to Wayward Sun shows, and I'm bound off, you know, off the stage, and I'm amongst all the crowd, or whatever, doing, you know, we're doing our signing our things and all that. And someone will bring up some sort of geeky-looking, lanky teenager about, or like a twenty-something, and go, "This is my son." You know, <laughs> he was born five years after you split up. You know, I'm like, how old is he? Seventy-three. No, he's, you know, like all of a sudden he just brings the whole thing home. <laughs> how yeah, bloody yeah. long I've been doing it, you know, like. But that's yeah, really lovely. Yeah. Look how many people you're affecting on me. That's incredible. That's, that's awesome. awesome. It's good. It is great. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a joy. And um, 
Um, and I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just happy to be able to carry on doing it. And it's nice to be able to do this sort of thing. And I thank you guys for inviting me on. I really do. Uh, Toby, wonderful guest. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, mate. Love no problem. Thank you, Toby. We'll see you at a, at a show soon. Hey, well, we should do some shows together, shouldn't we, sometime, maybe? Yes. That, that was going to be my Let's next thing. <laughs> I would love that. That would be good. Ah, uh, thank you. But thank you for coming on, Toby. And um, um, the 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 records coming out seventeenth of July. But it, all the all the copies are sold. There's a lot of people asking for where can they buy it, but they they they're sold out. Is that right? Or well, we did. I did a special. Just last thing, I did, I did a special edition of the Ignacy's Bliss record, which was a remastered twenty fifth anniversary sort of version. It's a songbook and all the rest of it. And um, so we just did we just did a, a limited run on that, but, I, but there has been a massive demand just for the record. So I think what we may do is like we'll get a couple of weeks behind us, and I might just put out a shout to see how many people are interested in just having like a vanilla version of it, you know, just like a booklet version in a, in a dual case, something like that. Um, I, I won't do any more books. I think the, I want the books to be something really special that that, that become collectors, and you know, they're they're they're. they're they were a one-shot deal, you know. I think it's important um, that it remains like that. Otherwise, it just kind of waters it down. But I, I probably will put the record out as a kind of standalone CD. You know, if anybody remembers what CDs are, you know, those little silver <laughs> things that used to come in. You know. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Toby, and looking forward to catching you on the road, mate. And I'm going to be guys. here and uh, digging. Thank you more. so much thank for the insight, the knowledge, and, and the passion, man. That's um, that's inspiring. It. Thank you so much. No, not, not at all. And listen, you keep doing it, guys. You are the you are the new forefront of this of this movement that we we love so much. And keep keep it up, keep it up. Top oh, man. Thank, thank you so, so much. much, Toby. Thank you, Toby. Stay safe. Hey, See you soon. Take, Take care. care Thanks for listening to Crowcast Podcast. Don't forget, this episode is also available to watch on our YouTube channel. For up-to-date information on everything crows, follow us on all our socials or visit our website, thosedamncrows.com. Tidy. Ta-da!